Welcome to Ask the Dean. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, and I'm the co-founder of MAPT. I'm joined every week by Rachel Grubbs, the other co-founder of MAPT, who has 20 years' experience in the pre-med and test prep world, and by Dr. Scott Wright, former executive director of TMDSAS and former director of admissions at UT Southwestern Medical School. Ask the Dean is a weekly Q&A we do live exclusively for our MAPT members, and this podcast is a recording of that session so that everyone can benefit from that knowledge. Let the knowledge flow. Ask the Dean, episode 61, Dr. Ryan Gray with Rachel Grubbs, Verinia Granham, and Dr. Scott Wright, the marvelous mapped. Uh, oh, we need another M to, uh, to finish that alliteration. The marvelous the- mapped. <laughs> Meeting of the minds. <laughs> oh, I like that. All right. It is, it is the mapped meeting of the minds here today to answer your questions um, for all of you watching on replay on YouTube. Hello. Welcome. This is a special weekly live Q&A that we do uh, in our mapped Facebook group, which is only for mapped members. So if you aren't a mapped member yet what are you waiting for uh go to maps.com m-a-p-p-d.com sign up for a free trial and check us out i hope everyone is doing well we have lots of questions so let's just go ahead and jump right in answer some questions first one here uh you have good stats extra and a story i said wait that's not a full question so i'm gonna ignore that one (laughs) All right, next one. Should a low Casper score prevent you from applying to any schools, especially if you have good stats extra in a story? Oh, there's the rest of the question. Uh, I scored in the first quartile. So uh, as a reminder, Casper, as of this year, 2021, is giving their quartile scores to all students. Last year, it was a trial run. They gave it to select students. But this year, you get to see if you scored in the 0 to 24th, 25th to uh, 49th, 50th to 74th, and 75th to 100th uh, quartile. And a lot of students are freaking out. They're not doing as well as potentially maybe they thought, and there's potentially lots of reasons why. Um, but, But Scott, what are your thoughts on students get this score back and they go, well, crap, my, my shot at going to medical school is, is gone. What should they do? No, I, I, I don't think that's the appropriate response uh, to uh, the Casper score. Um, I think it's still unclear, at least in my view, how schools are using Casper, what they're doing with that, um, with that score, what it means to them. A lot of schools that are even requiring Casper aren't using it in their process yet. They're just simply studying uh, what it means and what, what it might predict or, or, or et cetera. So, so I, I would not use the Casper score as a benchmark for whether or not to apply to a school. What you're not going to see on any school's uh, scores <clears throat> or, or, or on any school's website is what their average Casper score was or their median Casper score or whatever. Yeah. So I, I would not use that as a, as a, uh, as a, uh, a ruler to, to, uh, to, to make a determination on whether to apply to a school or not. Yeah. And it's, that's data that you'll never see 
never right. say never, but never see on the MSAR because the AAMC has a competing product, uh, a product to the Casper test. They have the SJT, which was uh, tested last year and is rolled out to a few more schools this year. So you'll you'll very likely never see that on the MSAR. Maybe some schools will put it out there, but it's still so early right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. All right, next question up here. I got my MCAT score back of 512. Amazing. Excellent. I'm Excellent. very grateful for the score, but my concern is that some DO schools may consider this, quote, too high for the class, and I will not be accepted. Is this a myth? Can an MCAT score be too high for a class's average? So, Scott, Brinia, Rachel, this is known as yield protection, right? Right. It's a thing. Right. It's a thing, right? Mm-hmm. Schools may go, mm-hmm. ah, right? That's too good of a score. They are very likely going to get an interview elsewhere, get accepted elsewhere, and they're not going to want to come to us at the end of the day. We had this same conversation with uh, our, our good friend, Dr. Sunny Nakai, who is at UC, no, she's not at UC Riverside anymore, is she? Or she's now at UC Riverside. I think she moved away from UC Riverside. But anyway, she, she used, to, used to be at UC Riverside, and she talks about how they would often not interview students who she could clearly see were only applying to UC Riverside because UC Riverside stats in the MSAR are low compared to many other schools. And so students with 515s and 4.0s would apply to UC Riverside as this quote-unquote safety school. And they would go, you're from New York. You know nothing about California. More specifically, you know nothing about the Inland Empire, which is the community that we take care of. We're not going to interview you, even though you think you have a chance just based on your stats. And so they would, they're like, you're not going to want to come here. You're going to get interviewed elsewhere. And so that, that is a thing. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, you, you can't control that, right? We talk, right. Scott, we talk a lot about this here, about – you can only control so many things. And so right. many students are trying to play this game of I'm going to control every little thing, including what the med school's thinking, including what their process is. And, and I'm going to gamify my way into getting into medical school. And it's just, you can't do that. No, you cannot do that. And it, you know, to me that produces a lot of stress and a lot of anxiety for the student. And so I don't think it's a, you know, that's a, that's a dead end, uh, as far as I'm concerned now. So first of all, I would say to this student, congratulations on a very solid MCAT score. That is awesome. Yeah. I, I I really think uh, that you should be very happy with that. <clears throat> should you be concerned that some DO schools may consider it too high? What's the point of that concern? You know, I, I, I don't think that that is something that you can control. I don't think, it, as Ryan said, I don't think it's something that you need to spend time thinking about. You need to focus on choosing schools that you think fit what you're looking for in a med school. Go for it and then let them do their job. You've done your job. Let them do theirs. Yep. So I had, I had a student last application cycle, maybe two ago crushed his MCAT, got a 520. And his number one choice, because of where he lived, where he owned a house, was a DO school in the same neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And and he was very concerned. It's very similar to this, 512, of like, you're not even going to look at me 
because you're going to think that I'm going to go to another school uh, and you're going to waste an interview spot on me. And so I told him what he should do is, is advocate for himself at the end of the day. Send, send a letter to the admissions committee or whatever email they, they give you at any sort of communication um, uh, opportunities and say, hey, look, um, I really want to come to your school. Here's why, blah, blah, blah. Just lay it out and, and hopefully get over the hump of them being concerned that based on yield protection, right? And yield protection is they're, they're going to protect all of their um, all of their interview spots and save them for the students who are very likely in their minds to come to mm-hmm. their school at the end of the day. And so that's what he did. He, he didn't end up getting an interview at that school at the end of the day, uh, but he did go to another DO school um, ultimately. Yeah. So yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, it's a game. It's a game. And, and really at the core of, of the message for this question is there are so many things that you can't control so why bother worrying about them? Exactly. Exactly. All right. Let's move on then. Can you give more insight how interview invites are distributed by schools in waves or batches? Scott, as a former director of admissions, how, how did you typically hand out invites? Yeah, so we would... Um, uh, we would get batches of uh, applications on a weekly basis from TMDSAS, which was our application service. And uh, we would <clears throat> evaluate for that week, that group of students, uh, which ones are we interested in, which ones are we, you know, sort of on the bubble for us. Uh, that would include uh, some students, frankly, who would get, who would get interviews based solely on the numbers. Uh, They had uh, uh, MCAT and GPA ranges that we wanted to see, and uh, we liked everything else in the application. So uh, the numbers really um, propelled them into an interview slot. Other students, uh, upon reading the application, there were things in there that we really liked that we wanted to see. So it was it was by a, a week by week basis. Now some applications would be held off <clears throat> to see how they compared in future weeks. Uh, some applications would be uh, done immediately. So it kind of just depended. But I would say, at least from my perspective, I think it's it's pretty common for schools to look in batches as, as applications come in and make decisions based on uh, the 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 um, you know what what the school is looking for in an application, whether it's number wise or whether it's uh, other aspects of the of the uh, of the candidate's background. Yeah. In other words, <laughs> you can't control it. The schools are gonna yeah. do what they do. Yeah. It's it's uh, it's an interesting thing to yeah, try to is. like if you're trying to schedule a vacation around this time, like just don't. Don't do it. <laughs> don't try to play games. No. Uh, although with with virtual interviews, you can you can it's set a little up bit your virtual easier. backdrop. And yeah. Exactly. I swear I'm not at the beach. <laughs> <laughs> It was like last week when you were, or sometime this week when you were. I was uh, in the closet. You were in the closet, but you had the uh, Golden Gate Bridge behind you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. I'm no longer in San Francisco. Good. 
How do I answer this question without selling myself? What do you feel are your personal and scholastic qualifications for the study of medicine? I don't want to come off as selling myself. Bernie, what are your thoughts there? I think just answer truthfully. I don't see, you know, anything wrong with being honest with your qualifications. Uh, I know Dr. Gray is a fan of stories. Um, I don't know if you have a story that you can kind of highlight, you know, a personal situation that showed your qualifications, you can do that as well. But at the end of the day, you just have to, you know, just let the numbers, I guess, or the, the qualifications speak for themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think, I think there are a few questions that lend themselves more to selling and, and that's mm-hmm. potentially one of them. And you can sell yourself as, as you mentioned, Vernia through a story, um, talk about a specific skill or trait that you have. Um, and, and back it up with a, a little anecdote. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that one, Rachel, you're muted. Uh, I think that one lends itself to, to a little bit of a sales pitch there. Yeah, I agree. The, the kind of quick rule of thumb I give on this on like, you know, if people are like worried that they're um, coming across as over the top, is how many adjectives are you using? How many superlatives are you using? So superlatives are words like best, most, strongest, weakest, right? The ones that end in est usually. Um, So if you find that you're tacking those on, like I had an incredibly hard time, then yeah, maybe, maybe you sound a little over the top, but if you're just stating what happened, right? Like uh, there was a ranking system and I was first or, there was a ranking system and I was 17 out of 832, then you're not bragging, right? Like mm-hmm. you're just telling like it is. And it happens that you've got some really good stuff. So I, I think that's a, that's a way to kind of strip down and know that you're just telling us, you're just telling the facts and the facts might happen to sell you because you've got something awesome. Mm-hmm. Yep. yep. All right. Are the MCAT prep materials put out by the AAMC different each year, or do they reuse the same questions? Rachel Grubbs, MCAT expert extraordinaire. Hi. Yeah, they're the same, friends. <laughs> um, okay, so first, I am not with the WMC, but, but, but like all, all disclaimers, right? When in doubt, go ask them. But as someone who's been watching the WMC put out materials for the last 20 years, I've only seen them make a major major change twice. And the last major change was in 2015. So um, they did in the first year or two after the MCAT changed in 2015, add a couple more pieces of material, but even, even that has slowed down. So the, the materials that you've used this year or that your friends are using this year, if you're planning ahead, are finite and static. And I have not heard anything about any changes for MCAT prep other than the WMC did recently confirm that they plan on working with Khan Academy to find a way to keep Khan open and hopefully free. But in terms of WMC practice tests, the sample tests, the, um, the, the section banks that they have, that's the exact same. So you don't want to burn through it too early, right? If you're doing MCAT prep, um, you want to use those third-party sources. You know, um, we're big fans of Blueprint around here, but whether you're using Blueprint, Princeton, Kaplan, Altius, Exam Crackers, 
use those and save your AAMC stuff for closer to when you're taking the official MCAT because that's always going to be your best source. And once you've used them, um, you can't, it's not that you could never retake a test, but the rule of thumb is anything you retake within three or four months, you're going to remember too well to be accurate. So they are precious. My precious. Well, that's exactly <laughs> what I mean. <laughs> the movie that I've never watched. What? Are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah, we've talked about this before. I, no, we have never talked about this. Yeah. Whoa, 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 yeah. whoa, whoa. What Game is Thrones, your problem? Lord of the Rings. Like, it's just not my cup of tea. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I have I so mean, many nerdy things to say right now, and I'm just I going to right? stand track. We're talking about pre-med life right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, is so submitting funny. your primary in July late? Brittany, what do you think? <laughs> yeah, sort of. <laughs> but, close. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's, it would depend, I guess, on... I'll, I mean, it is late, generally speaking. Yes, it is ge- late, generally speaking. But, um, you know, how strong is your application? Do you have MCAT scores back? Um, you know, are you questioning if, you know, if it's a strong enough application? There's so much that goes into making this decision right now. Um, all things, let's say, I don't like to say all things, can, you know, being even or but taking all these things into consideration, if you think you have a, a good application, you know, there's no reason you can't apply now, but but know that yeah, it is a little later in the cycle. Yeah, <laughs> Doctor Wright, uh, TMDSAS, uh, y- your lovely companions over there, uh, compadres. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I saw some data once, and I know you don't like talking about this data, but I'm going to make you talk about it. Uh, it. The data was like. If you submit your application in May, June, or July, like that's a large percentage of the interview invites that went out mm-hmm, every year, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And that typically included July. Um, mm-hmm. it, it usually started to go down, but July applicants for at least for TMDSAS still had decent shot of of getting an interview invite. Now, AMCAS right is very different because yes. the the, the processing time verification time yes. is yes. is probably eight weeks at this point if yeah. you were to submit it yeah. today yeah uh, and that's the that's the big difference between amcas and and tmdsas it's a it's an issue of volume but it's also an issue of how we how the how the uh, application services go about doing what they do TM, yeah. tmdsas has a different process and uh, it, it's a quicker process. Some of that is due to volume, but also some of it is due to some philosophical differences between uh, how how uh, Team DSS does it and how AMCAS does it. It's not to say necessarily either is right or wrong, although I think Texas is always pretty right. But anyway. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, but yeah, so if you, if you submitted your application in Texas – uh, on July the 15th, by within probably a week to 10 days, those medical schools are going to have that application. Yep. Uh, but just like you said, just said, with AMCAS, we're looking at six to eight weeks processing time uh, right now. So the, app- the med schools are going to get that application until potentially even mid-September. Yeah. So that's that's where 
the uh, that's where the the caution uh, comes from that Verenia was talking about. Yeah. And a coma is similar to TNCFAS, very quick turnaround time, typically Mm -hmm. within a week. And so there's much less concern about a July application for a comus and we've talked about it here on the on on ask the dean before that it, it, this is a theory of mine that i've thrown out there that a comus schools hold interview slots for later applicants yes students who apply md first and maybe don't get the traction they're hoping for and then put in a later application to a comus so mm-hmm. there's there's better shots at a comus later mm-hmm. yeah and their and their timeline has shifted a little bit back yeah. because of that and, and other factors as well. Yeah. I, I interviewed a student today for the pre mid years podcast. She was interviewed by a DO school in April and mm-hmm. uh, was put on the wait list, which a lot of schools interviewing that later typically for wait list spots. And she mm-hmm. uh, she got off the wait list like oh, before wow. she was ready to retake the MCAT and she oh, already awesome. submitted her new application. I, I think we should petition the three application services. If if you're reapplying to medical school, you submit your primary application and you get off of a wait list, you get accepted to a school. Those primary applications should refund you your your primary fees. I completely agree with that. That's a lot of money down the drain for, yeah. and it happens for all the time yeah. for nothing yeah. at the end of the yeah. day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <sighs> but what do I know? <laughs> <sighs> anyway, is pushing the MCAT test date from August seventh to August twenty first an issue of applying cycle? My HAP has been submitted and verified by WMC and Comus. So. Kind of same conversation we just had, right? Mm-hmm. Later is worse. Earlier is better. Mm-hmm. Take your chances. Yeah, because that 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 uh, two weeks is going to mean uh, you know that's going to push you into September, late September, to get that score back. Yep. And a lot of schools are just going to hold on to that application, knowing that you're getting a new score. So mm-hmm. yeah, and take the MCAT when you're ready. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Hi, Rachel, you're, you're the MCAT uh, maestro here. Yeah. Is two weeks, two weeks really significant in MCAT prep? Uh, no, people do it all the time. And yeah. what I think it usually means is um, either fear or inconsistency. They mm-hmm. feel like they want to go in on a good sprint. And to me, it's a reflection of the desire to cram, which mm-hmm. is not really the right way to prep for the MCAT. Yeah. Um, but it, the flip side of this, is I'm, I'm not going to say never push back two weeks because students do it all the time. And like your own mental setup is a big part of this. So if, 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 if a person feels there's just no way I could do it on the seventh, I need to the 21st, then, then like that mindset is going to dictate. Um, I, I've cited this many times and, and asked the Dean, but I'll go back to it again. Blueprint has, a great article on their blog that's uh, am I ready to take the MCAT and it helps you strip away the emotion and just look at um, your scores. And, you know, the first thing it asks is have you taken four or five practice tests under time conditions? And if the answer is no, well then no, you're not ready. Right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But if you have, then it starts to help you look at the numbers and make some decisions. 
Um, so if, if you go to the Blueprint MCAT website and just type in, uh, am I ready to take the MCAT, you guys will find it. And I might have a banner somewhere buried in here that I can come up with too to get you the link. Um, but that's, I, I think that's helpful. But, you know, for me, we get these questions every summer and I always want to be supportive. But anyone who's sort of doing these negotiations between late June and July or July and August or early August and late August, like, you're just going to have to go with your gut and move forward. But everybody else who's listening for future years, this is why we say aim to take the MCAT in January or March. Like, obviously, this question asker doesn't have a time machine. And there's a lot of reasons that you end up taking the MCAT in the summer. So I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying if you can, you want to avoid the situation. So um, you know, pull forward that prep. Think about taking it in the winter if you possibly can. And then for mm-hmm. this person... I would say go check out that article, look at your practice test scores, and Godspeed. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the MCAT. Mm-hmm. Hello, Dr. Gray. If I understand correctly, you participate in the HPSP scholarship. Would you be able to please talk about the pros and cons of this program or others like going to USIS, so Uniform Services University of Health Sciences? Um, and that's that's a whole podcast in of itself. I've talked about it a ton. Um, if you just shoot me an email, Ryan at mapped.com, I can uh, I'll give you a list of resources. I have a, a sh- quick shortcut email that I can send. Um, but really, at the end of the day, it's nice because you come out with very minimal debt, if any. Uh, but you are owned by Uncle Sam and are uh, are under his control so um never chase it just for the financial aspects join the military if you want to be in the military um i'll leave it at that i'm in non-trad currently in the first year of my post back i'm in the process of reflecting on undergrad experiences and was wondering how to talk about my study abroad semester on an application but English is a full course load while there. This comes up a bunch, Scott, in terms of students wanting to put study abroad in their activities list. And I always scratch my head a little bit because kind of the the pseudonym, that's not the right word, the alternate name that a lot of people call the activities list is the extracurricular list. Right? And study abroad is not extracurricular, right? This is the definition of curricular. You're just doing it in a different spot. That's like all of this online kind of COVID classwork going, I should talk about that as an experience because I didn't do it on campus. Um, what, are your, what are your thoughts on study abroad programs? In an yeah, I mean, I think uh, it's, um, I, I agree with you completely that extracurricular means outside of the curriculum and study abroad is, is clearly within the curriculum. I think the appropriate place to talk about study abroad is you could talk about it potentially extracurricular elements of your study abroad experience. Mm-hmm. So if you, you know, if it was outside of the classroom and you visited, you know, out in the, in the countryside and you did things and whatever, and that that was meaningful to you, then yeah. But I, I think the, the, um, the best place to talk about study abroad experiences, particularly if they're really meaningful in, in directing you on this path toward medicine, is in the personal statement um, because that 
um, really is the avenue for you to, to talk about what those experiences meant to you. Uh, potentially, also, you could talk about them on uh, secondary applications, depending on the, the prompt and what it's talking about, et cetera. So, um, but I, I don't think in that activity section is, is probably the appropriate uh, place for it, uh, depending on kind of what about that experience, what you're talking about. Yeah, so this particular question asker does put at the end of their comment, I taught English and took a full course local mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. So I could see teaching English, presumably, yes. I mean, I don't know where they studied abroad, but presumably they were te- teaching English as a foreign language. So I could see focusing on that activity yes. and then mentioning yes. in the activity description, this was while I was in Romania or wherever. Right, um, right. And then I've said this before, but again, I'll just, I've, questions are common for a reason. Um, I don't know where this question asked studied, but when you're thinking about studying abroad, if you're thinking about mentioning it in terms of like, this is what makes me unique or what I bring to the table. If you were in Western Europe, don't act like it was a real, real big change. Um, I mean, I lived in Western Europe. I loved it. And it was actually a culture shock because I had lived in Mexico already. So then I was like, oh, Spain's so different. Um, But it's still not that different compared to U.S. and Canadian life. Um, So just be mindful of like the global perspective of how different was what you were doing. Um, But in this particular question, I think that the teaching English might be the way into an extracurricular comment. Yeah. I I saw that recently a a student was talking about if for a secondary prompt of like, tell me a time you worked with people who are different than you. And they talked all about their time in, in England. I'm like, nah, those people are just, just like us with a funny accent. <laughs> How are grad school GPAs factored if the degree is non-science? Yep. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, there's, uh, the you know, we've talked a lot about the application services cut up the GPA in a lot of different ways. You're going to have a undergraduate GPA that is BCPM uh, as well as non, or, you know, science as well as non-science. You're going to have a graduate GPA if you have graduate coursework. That is a, a graduate GPA that is science and a graduate GPA that is non-science. And so it's going to it's going to be seen as distinctive uh, amongst the GPAs and uh, and it'll be evaluated however the school, however the school evaluates it ba- based on their uh, their uh, matrix of things that they do. And so um, but they will see it as distinct from other other GPAs. They will see it as a non-science graduate GPA. Got a follow-up question to that from someone else. Do schools consider post-bac better than a master's program? So this this question comes up all the time, yeah. uh, especially, unfortunately, a lot of medical schools are starting master's programs, uh, special master's programs, mm-hmm. or are affiliated with a an institution that does master's programs. And the default is, here's your rejection, and we would love for you to apply to our yeah. master's program. And unfortunately, a lot of students are probably wasting a lot of money just reflexively doing these master's programs, thinking that's going to help. 
I'm under the impression talking to students who go through this process and talk to adcom members and talking directly to lots of deans and directors of admissions that undergraduate coursework is typically weighed heavier than master's work. And so post-bac is typically considered undergraduate coursework, and that's where that would lie. So post-bac yeah. typically greater than master's, although there's there's lots of caveats to that and financial aid implications with that. Right, right. So... Yeah, and and I agree that you know I think the 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 key to that and the reason why that is true often is is that me, that medical schools know how to interpret undergraduate coursework. They know what it means. That when you take biochemistry on the undergraduate level, they know exactly what that means. They know what it means when you take genetics. When you're in a master's program, the the special master's programs are a little bit different than that. But if you're if you were in a, a graduate program in biology or or, or whatever, um, it's a little bit more difficult for them to understand uh, because they don't deal with those GPAs as often. And so they understand what a GPA of 3.5 means on the undergraduate level, whereas at the graduate level, uh, a 3.5 GPA may, may mean something uh, very different. Mm -hmm. You're muted again, Rachel. <laughs> I was saying, I think that's so important to keep in mind because I think a lot of students get this false idea that if they do a grad program, then it's a fresh number and the schools will just look at that and like, no, that's what upward trends are for, right? And mm -hmm. I'm not saying never do a master's because maybe you're doing the master's not to impress outcomes, but because it's what you love and that's the best reason to do it. Yeah. Um, but especially for the person who is asking about a master's degree non-science, that should be about the love because that's not going to carry a whole lot of weight with outcomes. Um, it's why most people end up doing post-back upper level sciences if they're looking to enhance their GPA. But there are lots of reasons to take coursework that aren't just about applying to med school. Yeah, very, very common scenario with doing an MPH. A lot of students do an MPH thinking, oh, I'll do a master's. It'll help with med school. Uh, and typically doesn't because it's not hard sciences, but a lot of students do an MPH because they're really interested in the epidemiology, yeah. public health side of things. Yeah, it might still help you in your career. Yep. Um, it just isn't necessarily going to help with the moment of application to med school. Yep. Um, all right. Oh, here's a good one. At what point do experiences, quote, expire or shouldn't be on an application? I was an RA in undergrad, and this experience was essential to who I am, but by the time I apply, it will be almost six years old. <laughs> so old. Oh, so Scott, old. Scott, I, I remember, I, I remember uh, a time when I, I had a kind of a, a transformational experience uh, in Kenya after high school. Oh wait, I shouldn't talk about that. That's too long ago. It doesn't, it doesn't impact me anymore. It's not important. Um, it doesn't expire. It's changed who uh, you are. Yeah. You said it right there. It's exactly right. Exactly right. I mean, students, six six years is not that long ago. Yeah, <laughs> students talk about you know experiences in childhood that set them on this path. Yeah, yeah. So right. when you're 24, six years is 25 percent of your life. So <laughs> well, I understand that, and I don't know what the implications are for that for me, but <laughs> nonetheless, yeah. Okay. Uh, I all, all giggling aside, and I get it, right? The older you get, the more you're like, six years. That was like a blip. Um, <laughs> but 
we do talk about the importance of talking about experiences in, in extracurriculars and in your work activity section that are post high school graduation and beyond. Um, so I can see sort of there's a potential root of that of, is it, is it, is that because of time? And no, it's usually about like just everyone having the same starting point, but it, in a way that is a potential at, um, advantage of being on a slightly different schedule that you have a little bit more time to rack up act, rack up experiences. Um, so if it's something that's from before, from high school or earlier, like Verenia said, it might show up in a personal statement, but it's probably not going to be in your ECs because it's just that's ECs are, are usually meant to be college and later. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so an RA would still qualify any way you slice it. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. <sighs> All right. I'm doing summer research at my top pro uh, top choice med school. I found out that the professor I'm doing research under makes students write their LOR and then he signs. He won't write it. Is this an ethical concern? A quick internet search made it look like this is common, but I've personally never had this happen to me before. Hmm. We've talked about this a couple times, Scott, right? Yeah. I mean, I think it's unethical. I, I don't. I don't like the idea that a professor would do that. Um, I think it's shirking his or her responsibility. Uh, part of which is to do this kind of thing. Uh, but I get it. Um, so I, I would say it depends on the uh, ethical position of the student and 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 what their comfort level is with that. But um, you know, don't. If if you do if you do that if you go through that process don't don't say don't um, declare that you don't want access to that letter to make it seem like you don't know what's in the letter uh, don't do that uh, but um, otherwise you know I I don't know it's, this is a tough one yeah Bernie what do you think about this I was just thinking the same thing it's very tricky. Um, you know, I don't know if medical schools would ever follow up on the recommendation letter. Um, but there's always that, that, that concern of this person is not going to know what I wrote in my letter. Um, I would probably encourage a, a student to maybe try to get other recommenders as well. Obviously, um, if you can afford to not have this person write the recommendation letter, I would, I would. I can I could see that coming out of my mouth. I'm just not comfortable with it. I just mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me either. And yeah. unfortunately, as the student says, it is relatively common. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So maybe see if you have other recommenders that can write for you as well. Um, maybe leave this person as a last resort. Yeah. It's it's funny when I was writing my new my new book, uh, the guide to the medical school application. This came up in the book in terms of. Uh, requesting letters of recommendations and having the letter writer ask you to write it. And I was like, well, should I show examples of what a good letter is? Then I'm just like, no, I'm not going to go there. (laughs) I'm just going to say it happens. Do what you can to potentially avoid it. And I'll leave the rest up to you. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Yeah, I agree. Same. Yeah. It just, it it seems so weird to me because I feel like the the strongest letters speak to the breadth of what that professor has seen. 
right? Like hopefully in a really amazing letter, you're going to get something like the professor saying, I've worked with 5,000 students in summer research over 30 years, and this person is in the top 5%. And like, no student can make that that estimation. And if they guess, then you could end up with seven letters all from that professor that all happen to cite some crazy high number that then will immediately raise a red flag, you know, so you're going to end up with a really vague letter, which feels like damning with faint praise. Like I just like the more my brain circles around it, I'm like, you know, this isn't a place where I'd confront, but I think I would slowly back away. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I agree. All right. I'm curious to know if anyone knows of, of knows of an equivalent of Dr. Ray's podcast advice for pre-meds for medical students with the end goal of residency. I don't, although the pre-med year's name came about, it used to be called the Medical School HQ podcast, and then I changed it to the pre-med year's podcast because I was getting ready, very close to launching a med school years or whatever the equivalent name would have been. So uh, stay tuned. Potentially here at uh, Mapped and, and uh, Meted Media, um, one will come because we, we have some plans for Mapped in the future to uh, allow medical students to keep using it to prepare for their residency applications. Because if you didn't know, <laughs> residency applications, very similar to medical school applications where you're gathering letters of recommendations, you're... You're studying for your tests, just like uh, the MCAT. You're studying the boards. You're you're still doing extracurricular activities, doing research, shadowing, all of that fun stuff uh, to compile for your residency application, which is run by the AAMC. Yeah. <laughs> Same people as AMCAS. So. Yeah. Um, I know because I just saw they were doing a social splash about it. Tourify Diversity is doing some mentoring for fourth years this year to try to help them get ready for a good match. Um, so uh, I don't think it's, it's not the depth of podcasts and advice the way Med School HQ is, but um, I think any, any mentoring group that you're, you the listener are aware of for pre-med, some of them do continue to continue on. So it's worth looking. And sometimes it has to be something like Torfi diversity where you're looking for a niche that matches your group, but that could could be one source. All righty. How do you start narrowing down what to talk about in a personal statement if you haven't always wanted to be a doctor? I see this so much where students just need to like word vomit. Like, I didn't yeah. always want to be a doctor. Like, obviously. Like we all come to these conclusions in our life uh, at some point. And so um, really at the end of the day, at least all of us believe that the personal statement is, why do you want to be a doctor? Not tell me about a time when you didn't want to be a doctor. Mm -hmm. So making sure that you're following the kind of idea that we, we throw out in uh, the pre-med playbook guide to the medical school personal statement of kind of, when were you exposed to medicine and what kind of experiences have you had to support that decision? Mm-hmm. Here's where I'll remind everybody that Dr. Gray has a book for everything. <laughs> Pre med guide to the personal statement. So like not to punt on this question, but just the answer so long that he wrote a book. 
Mm-hmm. So I would definitely recommend you check that out. There, there used to be, um, it was In Living Color, the old uh, In Living uh-huh. Color show, where there, there was a guy who's like, wrote a song about it, like to hear it. <laughs> but but for me, it's it's wrote a book about it, want to read it? <laughs> Got lots of books here. So We can't see you anymore, Ryan. Your face went away, Ryan. Where'd it go? Well, that's weird. Your browser has lost connection to your camera. All right, I'm going to remove you. <laughs> All right. Oh, well. oh, oh there, there he is. is. There he is. Yep. He's back. <laughs> Wrote a book about it. Want to see it? <laughs> anyway. All right. Now I want to hear your song about it. No, I didn't write a song. I just wrote a book. I know. I just... Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> All right, our popcorn popping has slowed down. So, uh, yeah, it's a uh, Rachel. Well, you want to um, you want to talk about our new up and coming feature potentially that some students may be interested in? Yeah. So I can't do a demo yet, but I can chat. Demo. Yeah, um, we can chat about it. Operative word. All right, friends. So one of the most common things we hear from MAPT members is that they would like to talk to us even more, which is nice. We're glad you like us. Um, So, you know, again, this is going out currently live to MAPT members and then on the replay to anyone. Right now as a MAPT member, once you join MAPT, you get access to a private MAPT Facebook group. Um, and there the community can ask questions. And a lot of times there are students who are so well-informed that they're kind of answering for each other. And we do still monitor that to make sure that it's all good answers being given. So even when the community is kind of helping, you know, there's peer help, we're, we're checking on those answers. And then that's also a way to connect with advisors. And then also in that group, we um, stream these. So you get this live weekly Q&A where if you're not a MAP member, you're only seeing them once a month. As a MAP member, every single week, you get an hour with the entire MAP advising team. So already MAP members, we think, get a lot of access. But we've decided to add one more layer. I don't know if we've completely locked in on a name. Um, I think maybe Mapped Plus or Mapped Chat. But what it will be is an additional service as a Mapped Up member that if you want, you can have um, messaging with the Mapped advising team. So if there are questions that are too long or complicated for a Facebook post or that you just feel is a little bit private and you'd rather ask in a one-on-one scenario, now we've got a way for you as a Mapped member to get those questions asked and then we're saying chat, but I want to be clear. It's not going to be 24-7 respond within a few minutes, but we will try to respond, you know, same day, next day at the latest. Um, you will always know which of the four advisors it is. You're not necessarily going to get to pick, but you'll see who it is that's replying. So you'll know who you're having a conversation with and you'll have that whole thread saved and mapped. So it's just going to be a way that when you're working, you've got one more way, you know, I think, we get a lot of, well, I just had a quick question and I don't want to wait until the next ask the, ask the dean. Yeah, just use it in chat. So that is being built right now. Um, and I think we'll be ready, uh, I'm going to conservatively say, by like back to school season in late August. Um, so actually by the time this goes live, it might already be out there. Um, but for those watching or when this goes to Map TV, it'll be out there. Those watching live, you've probably got another three or four weeks before we release it. 
but we're really excited. Um, yeah. We did survey some of you to see what you thought, and most people seem excited about it. Um, it will be an add-on service, which means that if you're happy with Match with the level of access you've got, you don't have to change anything. Cool. Well, that is it. Um, we had one more question come in. You want to jump on that one? I'm a peri-op RN. Should I only estimate clinical time for when my patient is awake? <laughs> yes. Anesthesiologists don't do any clinical experience. So their patient is always sleeping. <laughs> uh, the answer is no. no. All right. We get this question a lot for like EMTs. Should I only count time when I'm out on a call? The answer is no. I really appreciate this question because it is high integrity. It is. Um, yeah, but as is. someone who's been through many surgeries, I know you're working when I'm under and I am glad. Yeah. <laughs> So please count it. <laughs> yep, yep. Count it all. Yeah, I, I always come back to a large percentage of what doctors do is non technically non clinical experience, but it's, they're still working. Yeah. yeah. That's right. Awesome. I think that's it. Yeah. Another Ask the Dean. Another Monday. Yeah. 61 of them so far. It's amazing. Unbelievable. I've, I've put yes. up with you all this month. It's crazy. So That's next amazing. week we'll be live. Uh, August 2nd will be public. Uh, so we'll do that through YouTube. Yeah. So uh, we'll see you guys then. Yeah. Okay. Bye. Bye, everyone. Bye. This is Dr. Gray again closing out. I hope you learned something from our session today. If you haven't yet checked out Mapped, I invite you to try it for free for two weeks by going to mapped.com slash podcast. Track and navigate your journey to medical school using the only tool like it for pre-meds. We'll see you next week here on Ask the Dean.